But today we find ourselves in verses 53 through 65 of chapter 14. So turn there if you would. And as you turn there, finish this sentence for me. Whoever told you life was fair lied. That's right. Maybe your mom was the first to tell you that. Maybe a grandfather, maybe a teacher or a coach. Three weeks ago, actor Matthew McConaughey, he told a similar thing to the graduating class at the University of Houston. He was their commencement speaker. He said, and I quote, life's not fair. It never was, it isn't now, and it won't ever be. Do not fall into the entitled trap of feeling like you're a victim. You are not. Get over it and get on with it. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about hearing that life isn't fair from a millionaire actor who sort of won the genetic lottery. (laughs) But I'll say this, he's right. And even still, it matters who we hear those words from, doesn't it? Those born into wealth can't really deliver that line to those born into poverty. Those with a brilliant mind can't really say life's not fair to someone with severe learning disabilities. But I'll tell you this, those are words that we could soberly and respectfully receive from the Lord Jesus. Why? Because in our text this morning, we have a scene that is so void of justice and so absent of fairness that no one in history could proclaim life's not fair with more integrity and empathy than Jesus Christ. In fact, most of what happened to Jesus in his final hours isn't just unfair, it's flat out illegal. Jesus endured six formal hearings in a matter of hours. Three of them were religious, so those were before the Jewish authorities. Three of them were secular before the Roman authorities. And Bible commentators have different ways of adding it all up, but the sheer number of Jewish laws broken during these trials is staggering. New Testament scholar Daniel Aiken, he shares a few insights. He writes, In capital cases like Jesus, trials at night were forbidden. So here it's the middle of the night. In cases where a guilty verdict was established, a second day and a second session were required to ensure a fair trial. We know that this was all going to be over before dawn. Such a trial should not convene on a Sabbath or a festival. It's Passover. In addition, a charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name. And then the penalty was to be death by stoning. And we know that Jesus was crucified. Yet due to the threatening ministry of Jesus, due to his scathing critique of religious life in Israel, and therefore his condemnation of the high priest himself, due to the fact that if Jesus could not be presented to Pilate early Friday morning, the case was going to drag on until after the Sabbath, and if people found out that Jesus was imprisoned, the risk of mob violence was going to grow and grow and grow. Due to all of that and more, the Sanhedrin, they justified their injustice. They didn't care if they were bending and breaking their own rules. They considered this an issue of national security, and therefore they conjured up a host of accusations against the only morally pure and legally innocent person to ever live. 
when power and reputation are at stake, breaking God's rules is easy to justify. We see this among politicians today and even amongst preachers and everywhere in between. So let's go to the text. Let's read Mark 13, or excuse me, Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to first talk about the setting of this passage, and then we'll talk about the details of the trial that we just read. But first, the setting. Remember, Jesus has finally been arrested. He was betrayed by one of the twelve. This happened at or near the Mount of Olives, a place just east of the city of Jerusalem. A Roman cohort of soldiers, so some 600 men, came out to apprehend Jesus. They did not expect him to just surrender. And with temple police alongside them, they actually expected a fight. They did not get one. Jesus surrendered himself. His disciples scattered, just as he said they would. And now he's mere hours away from bearing the sin of the world on the cross. But the Sanhedrin they first need to drum up some charges to get him there. So that's where we pick up in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest. Other gospel accounts tell us they first went to the house of Annas. Annas had been the previous high priest. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the standing high priest. So they went there first to the house of Annas and then to Caiaphas where the Sanhedrin, where the supreme court of Israel, consisting of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, where they came together to miscarry justice against Jesus. So typically a trial like this would be held in the chamber at the temple. But this one was being held at the home of Caiaphas. This fact is highlighted by what we read in verse 54. Verse 54 says, Peter had followed at a distance. Peter's, this detail of Peter's distance sort of foreshadows his denial. But notice, Peter then goes into the courtyard of the high priest. So we're at the high priest's house. We're not at the temple. And he's sitting, Peter is, with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Now, next week, we're going to study Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. 
But here, I actually want to commend Peter. Sure, he's followed at a distance, but he did follow. And sure, he's afraid, but consider this, he's just cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Everyone close to the high priest has seen Peter's face. Peter's a marked man to be in the high priest's courtyard, sitting with the guards within sight of the Lord Jesus as he's led into his trial is a pretty bold move. There's some bravery here on Peter's part. But the reason Mark places verse 54 here is to communicate that Peter's denial of Jesus is happening at the exact same time as the trial of Jesus. He places this here to show that these are parallel scenes. And this is a detail that adds, I think, even more drama to a very, very dramatic moment in the life of Christ, in the history of the world, for that matter. So the setting is the high priest's house. Jesus is brought before the priests and the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. They surround Jesus in sort of a semicircle. Peter is present and accounted for, and he's in the courtyard trying to go unnoticed. So let's now move to the trial. We'll look at the trial under three headings, a false accusation, a faithful answer, and a fatal adjudication, which is a million-dollar word that just means judgment or condemnation. So first, a false accusation. I mentioned drama. There's nothing more dramatic than to be on trial for your life, and that's where Christ finds himself. That's where Christ has intentionally positioned himself. Problem is, they got nothing on him. Look at verses 55 and 56. They were seeking testimony against him, but they didn't have any testimony against him. They found nothing that they could accuse him of. They're whispering and they're yelling and they're throwing out accusations, trying to make him stick. These are the most powerful men in Israel, and they're desperate. Jesus is going to be mocked, but you know, they're the ones who deserve to be mocked for putting together this whole kangaroo court. And we read that many, many of these were bearing false witness against him. They're saying all kinds of stuff about him that wasn't true. They're hurling rumors and wild stories. None of it's sticking. Nobody's testimony agreed. That was requisite of testimony in a court of law, that an accusation had to be confirmed by the testimony of at least two people. That goes back to Deuteronomy 17. But, but this group, they can't even get their conjured up lies to line up. So things are swirling around until somebody brings up the temple. In the last several days of Jesus' life, he has said some things about the temple and done some things in the temple that the the Sanhedrin, they are furious about. No question, Jesus' posture toward the temple is the actual reason he finds himself standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And that's because the temple was the domain of the Sanhedrin. The Romans sort of left the temple alone. The Sanhedrin had their own temple police. The priests, they profited from the offerings and the money changing that went on there. The temple had its own currency. It had its own set of laws and rules. But when Jesus first entered the city in chapter 11, what did he do? He went and he made a formal assessment of the temple. It's essentially what chapters 11 through 13 are about, an extended assessment and condemnation of the temple. 
He had overturned the tables and driven out the crooks. He labeled the temple a den of robbers. He said that not one stone of the temple would be left on another. He announced the temple's destruction. So two men there in the trial, they stand up and they testify that we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now this is a serious, serious charge. Throughout the ancient world, the destruction or the desecration of a sacred place was a capital offense. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 26, when he announced to Judah that the temple was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians, he was seized and brought to trial as a criminal who deserved to die. If Jesus said what they're saying he said, then it's entirely consistent with their history to have him put to death. But did Jesus say that? Did he say, I will destroy this temple? No, he didn't. He didn't say that. He said in John chapter, chapter 2, about three years earlier, that this temple will be destroyed, and in three days I will raise it up again. And indeed, when he said that, he was standing in the shadow of the temple. But what he's referring to is not the physical temple. He's referring to his own body. He's saying, I'm the true temple. I'm the true tabernacle dwelling among you. It's in me that you meet God. I'm God's presence in your midst. I'm the glory of God drawn near. I'm not some, it's, it's not some building. I'm the temple, and this temple, me, I will be destroyed, and in three days I will raise up again. Jesus and his resurrected body will not destroy the temple. They'll just render it useless, pointless, obsolete. This is why the text points out that even about their testimony, they did not agree. Because it's not what Jesus really said. So they got nothing on him. Nothing. Which leads to the next stage of the trial. Second, we see that we have a faithful answer. The answer actually starts out as a non-answer. Verse 60 tells us that the high priest finally interrupts all the shenanigans, and he says to Jesus, what do you have to say for yourself? We hate you. We want you to die. We have something we think you've said about the temple. Speak up. Respond. Again, this is the Supreme Court of Israel. Mandy and I's brother-in-law, he works in the office of the Solicitor General in Washington, D.C. He's a lawyer. And his job is to receive cases that come to the Supreme Court write up briefs and arguments, and then present those arguments to the nine Supreme Court justices. And he sent me some recordings of what he has to do in those trials, in those hearings. And it is overwhelming to me. As he's written these arguments and as he's studied these cases cases, and he's delivering these words, the justices, Roberts and, and Alito and Scalia and all these guys, they're just pounding him with questions. They want clarity. They want understanding. They want to know what he means by that word and by this word and by this case and by this prerequisite. And I've told him before, man, if that was me and the justices of our United States Supreme Court were just pounding me with questions, I'd just wilt. I'd fold. I wouldn't be able to say a word. I don't know how you do it. Well, here Jesus says nothing. The tense of the verb actually points to a prolonged silence. It's a deafening silence. 
But silence can have a strategic value in moments like this, can't it? To say nothing is a refusal to to validate any of the testimonies that have been brought against him. To say nothing forces the court to deal with their own deceit and their own injustice for for them to sit there and think about what they've said. But most importantly, to say nothing fulfills the prophecy that we read in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. At only one point does Jesus break the silence. And it's when Caiaphas has had enough. Caiaphas is finished with witnesses who can't agree. He's finished with this whole trial scene. He's really finished with Jesus, so he gets right to the heart of the Sanhedrin's problem. He asks Jesus, point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This, for the first time in this whole proceeding, is a legitimate question. This is not, what did you do a few weeks back? This is, who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? This is the first legitimate thing introduced in this trial. And this is also the central question in the Gospel of Mark. The phrase blessed one is another way of saying God. It's called a circumlocution. It's a way of referring to God's name without saying God's name. So Caiaphas is asking, are you the son of God? This is the central question in Mark's gospel. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Fast forward to the end of the book, chapter 15, we have the centurion at the cross. He would make the only explicit confession of this truth in all 16 chapters of the book. At Christ's final breath, the centurion would say, surely this man is the Son of God. And so Jesus knows the intent here of Caiaphas's question, which is exactly why he answers it the way that he does. Jesus' faithful answer does not dodge the force of the question, which is often the way we deal with hard questions. Let me maybe kind of answer it, but I don't want to receive the full brunt of what it means to answer it. Jesus' faithful answer fully incriminates him. Jesus says, I am. And by answering, I am, Jesus says, yes, he is the Messiah. However, the Jews did not necessarily expect the Messiah to actually be God, to literally be divine. They would even often call their Old Testament kings sons of God. David was referred to that way. So neither the question nor Jesus' initial answer is fully incriminating, which is, which is why he answers the question further. Jesus goes the extra step, so there's no doubt about his identity. He says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And it's the second half of Jesus' answer that really blows the lid off these proceedings. By saying he's the Son of Man an allusion to Daniel 7.13, and by saying he's seated at the right hand of power, which is from Psalm 110, by putting both of those things together, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and I come to you as judge. 
And this is so brilliant of Jesus because everybody in the room that night, all the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, they know who the Old Testament Son of Man figure is. They know the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. And the clouds of heaven are not the same as the clouds of earth. They're not mere water vapor. The clouds of heaven are the Shekinah glory. They are the very presence of God. Therefore, by replying this way, Jesus is saying, I will come to earth in the very glory of God and judge the entire world. And given where he's standing, this is an astounding statement. Of all the things Jesus could have said, and there are so many texts and themes and images and metaphors and passages in the Old Testament that he could have used to tell who he was, he specifically comes out and says he's the judge. By the choice of these texts, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, he's forcing all those who are in the room, all of those who read this later on in Mark's gospel, he's forcing them to see this paradox that there's been an enormous reversal, that he is the judge over the entire world, but he's in the dock being judged by those in the world. Jesus is in effect saying, Today I stand before you wrongly condemned, but there is coming a day when you will stand before me justly condemned because I am the just judge. Now there are many critics of the New Testament who insist that at no time did Jesus ever claim to be the Messiah or the Son of God. They tell us that these labels were given to him by his disciples or they were applied later by interpreters of the New Testament. But if you ever hear anyone say that, just turn to this passage of Scripture. There are other places where you could turn also, but this one is the clearest. Jesus is under solemn oath to tell the truth, and he simply and clearly states, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. There's no doubt about it. Caiaphas tees up a question that will serve as a death sentence. Jesus answers it in a way that puts him to death. Only a man who has resolved to drink the cup, remember what he had done in the garden hours before, he said, God, not my will but yours, I'll drink the cup. If you want to take this cup from me, great. If not, the cup of your wrath, I will take it. I will drink it down to its dregs. Only a man who is resolved to do that would respond as clearly as Jesus has, as intentionally as Jesus has. The last feature in the trial is this fatal adjudication. When Caiaphas hears the words of Jesus, he has heard all that he needs to hear. In his mind, witnesses are no longer needed. There's no more need for trials. There's no more need for evidence. Caiaphas believes that he's heard blasphemy. So he rips his clothes. This is a dramatic reaction to what he considered blasphemy. It was a symbolic display designed to convey horror in the face of a terrible crime against God. Caiaphas thought he was being dramatic. He, was thought, he, he thought he was expressing anguish, holy anguish. But in truth, he was doing far more than that. Leviticus 21 gives us some insight. Remember, Leviticus essentially is essentially the handbook for the priests. And in their handbook given to them by God, Leviticus 21.10, it says, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, 
upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, he shall not uncover his head, nor shall he rend his clothes, tear his clothes, rip his clothes. Here's why I bring that up. When Caiaphas ripped his garments, he's disqualifying himself from office. He didn't fully realize it, but he had just stepped aside in the presence of the one who's superior to himself, Jesus Christ. Caiaphas had declared his own unworthiness to remain the high priest of Israel. He had, without fully knowing it, validated everything Jesus had done in the temple that entire week. The one standing before him was the only truly qualified one for the office of high priest. And Jesus, the high priest, would make atonement with his own blood. He would rise from the dead. He would ascend back to heaven to redeem his bride. And he would forever occupy a throne at God's right hand, interceding for his people, you and I. By violating his priestly conduct, Caiaphas was merely stepping aside to make way for the one who is vastly superior, vastly more qualified to be our great high priest. And what's interesting, Caiaphas had the longest tenure of high priest than anybody ever in the history of Israel. It's like 18 or 19 years. Nobody had ever served that long. If there was ever a qualified high priest, if there was ever anybody that knew the Levitical handbook, it was Caiaphas. But look what happens when Jesus comes along. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says about our high priest. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Forever. He's perfect. Yet the whole council here renders their verdict and they say guilty. They declare Jesus to be worthy of death. They They condemn him to that fate. And when Jesus is condemned, the true nature of these men come out. These these religious, these refined, uh, educated leaders turn on Jesus like a pack of dogs. They start to spit on him. They spit in his face. They cover his head. They cover his eyes. They begin hitting him. They demand that he tell them who it is that is striking him across the face. Prophesy. That's what they're calling for when they say prophesy there in verse 65. Ironically, Jesus had prophesied in chapter 10 that they would do this very thing, that they would mock him and that they would spit on him and that they would strike him. And that's not all. Their actions fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. Peter. Remember, Peter is there. He's watching it all. He's sitting in the shadows, and, and he would never forget this moment. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
to him who judges justly. By their open rejection of the Lord Jesus and by the cowardice of their attacks against him, these men condemned their nation to the judgment of God. And they condemned their own souls to the very same thing. I'll conclude with what James Edwards writes in his summary of this passage. He says, Mark's trial is profoundly ironic. The Sanhedrin stands on the law and Jesus sits in the dock. But in reality, the Sanhedrin breaks the law and Jesus upholds it. The testimony that the Sanhedrin seeks against Jesus is in the end not provided by the false witnesses, but by Jesus himself in his claim to be God's son. Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when he returns in glory. The Sanhedrin makes a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. Above all, it is the high priest, not Jesus, who blasphemes because Jesus is God's son. You know, if life was actually fair, the treatment Jesus begins to receive here and that we're going to continue to look at him in the next few weeks as he goes to more trials and ultimately goes to the cross, the treatment Jesus begins to receive at his trial and and, and through to his crucifixion, if life was actually fair, that would be the fate of all of us. Because that's what we deserve. He's enduring this in our place. He's standing where we should be standing. If we, wanted to be, if we wanted God to be fair, he would give us what we deserve, which is judgment, condemnation, and death. But thank the Lord that he is not fair with us. Thank God that he is merciful, that he gives us not what we deserve, but he gives us grace from the hand of Jesus. And that only happens because he stood in our place, and he took the injustice, and he took the unfairness, And he took the accusations, and he took it resolutely. He was not a victim. He intentionally walked into it so that we wouldn't receive what we deserve, but that we would receive grace from on high. If you've never received that grace, if you've never succumbed to that grace in your life, if you've never looked to Christ for your salvation and your forgiveness from sin, How can you look at him in this scene? How can you look at him in the scenes going forward and say, there wasn't enough done for me. I'm too big a sinner. His salvation can't be for me. I've done too much. I've got too much going on. No, he he stood in your place. He stood in the place of all of us. And to not receive him is is to subject yourself to the condemnation that you deserve. Don't get what you deserve. Get the grace that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would bring further illumination to our hearts and minds. We realize that there was a lot left unsaid. There was uh, more that could be said better. So God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just um, fill in all the gaps. Lord, also would just, uh, just plead and ask that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that has not put their faith in you, 
uh, asked you to forgive them for their sin and repented of it. God, I pray that they would do that today. They would seek somebody out, a trusted friend, a pastor, someone sitting around them, and that they would, through repentance and faith, be made right with you. They would look to Christ who stands in their place and be condemned no more. Lord, I thank you for this, this time and this place and this people uh, that you've given us a reason to gather. And it's because Christ went to death for us, but he also raised for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.